All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray for your Holy Spirit to be with us now. Speak to us from your word. Speak to our hearts. Speak conviction to us. Help us to be able to judge rightly. In Jesus' name, amen. So John chapter 10 is where we will spend the bulk of our time. We'll jump out a couple times, but John chapter 10. And I want to begin just with a review, because it's been a couple weeks since we talked about this, a review of what we talked about before. So this chapter starts out, John chapter 10, verse 1, very truly I tell you Pharisees, Anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. So Jesus is going to make a pretty bold claim and create this, uh, this, this neat imagery where he's going to refer to himself as the gate and he's also going to refer to himself as the shepherd. The context of the gate is the gate is the means by which sheep enter into the safety of the pen. And it is only through the gate that a sheep goes in, and it is only through the gate that the rightful shepherd comes and calls the sheep. There are plenty of people who try to climb in over the walls, but they are thieves and robbers. Jesus says, I am the gate. And the implication of this is the only way to go from unsafe to safe is through Jesus. He is the one who saves us. So this is the first point he's making. And in verses 9 and 10, it says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. This is a very important tool for you to maintain in the context of You making judgments about life and reality. The thief comes to kill and destroy. But Jesus comes that we may have life and have it to the full. Whenever something comes into your life, take a hard look at it. Has this thing come to give me a more full life or has this thing come to kill and destroy? Take the long view. Don't just think about the moment. Think about the long-term implications of any of these things that may come into your life. Are they here to give me life to the full or to destroy? Verse 11, I am the good shepherd, Jesus said. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is Jesus, and he's making the promise here. It's not fully understood yet. It hasn't happened yet. But when we go back and read it and look at it, we understand exactly what Jesus is saying. He's going to lay down his life for us. The punishment that we deserve will be on him, which he does not deserve. And the righteousness and blessing that we don't deserve, that he deserves, will come to us. It's what the good shepherd does. And then verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. We did a video about this some time ago and we talked about it again a couple weeks ago, how sheep know the shepherd's voice. Do you remember that video we showed? 
that all these, these kids go up to this fence and they call this flock of sheep that are out there and the sheep absolutely ignore them, don't even look up. But the second the shepherd comes up and starts to call, they immediately answer. They start looking up and before long they've all run to where he is. He walks into the pasture and heads off and all the sheep follow him. Completely ignored everybody else. Jesus says, I am that shepherd. Learn my voice. And every time you hear it, follow. And again, this helps us in in our lives to not be led astray into the wrong things. But it only helps us if we've learned to recognize Jesus' voice. How do we do that? Well, there's lots of ways we do that. But the number one way is right here. You take this book, you open it up, and you read from it every day. That's the very easiest and best way to learn the voice of Jesus. So this is the context, and this is what he set up, and it creates a division. Verse verse 19, the Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, These are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So that's where we pick it up today, verse 22. Verse 22 says, Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter. Now, kind of interesting details, right? You don't get a lot of weather references in the Bible. You get one every now and then, like there was the uh, guy that went down into the pit on a snowy day and killed a lion, wasn't it? I think it was a lion, yeah. You don't get a lot of weather references in the Bible. You have the whole rain that came down when Elijah's running in front of Ahab, you have that one, but, but mostly it's not involved. And if you ever do get one, it's because it's relevant to the story somehow. And you would hear this, and you would not really necessarily know why it was relevant, but there's two reasons here. One is, then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. All right, first of all, the first interesting point here, there was a reason Jesus was walking in Solomon's colonnade. This particular structure existed at a place in the temple that the winter sun shone into at that time of year. And so for all of the temple area, Solomon's colonnade tended to be the warmest place to be in winter if you were in the temple. So that's one context in which this reference is relevant. So Jesus is intentionally in the place in the temple where the most people will be at that time. But it's not the only reason it's mentioned, because there's also mentioned that the festival of dedication had come, and it was in winter. Now, if I just threw that out at you, and I said, Jewish festival in winter, what would I be talking about? Hanukkah. Hanukkah. That festival that comes up around Christmas. It's the only wintertime festival. But here's the interesting thing about Hanukkah. It's not one of the feasts that Moses outlines, is it? 
In fact, it doesn't appear anywhere in the scripture as we have it. Let's go through this. There's, there's the feasts that, that Moses wrote about. There's Rosh Hashanah. That's the Feast of Trumpets. And we as Adventists have said, ah, the, uh, the, the Second Advent movement was a fulfillment of the Feast of Trumpets. That this was the warning. See, the Feast of Trumpets came right before Day of Atonement. So it was, it was the warning that Day of Atonement is coming. And we said, oh, this, this relates uh, in our context to the Second Advent movement. The warning that the Day of Judgment is coming Remember the first angel's message? And that, uh, and that the day of atonement will soon be upon us. So there's Rosh Hashanah, then there's Yom Kippur, which is the day of atonement, which was the most sacred of all the days. And we have associated that with an idea of a beginning of a judgment that we understood to have begun October 22, 1844. So this is how we've traditionally allocated these things. Then you have Sukkoth, which is the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was all about God with us, tabernacling with us. We've equated this with the second coming. So in our mind, this one hasn't taken place yet, the fulfillment. And then as you work on through the year, and actually if the religious year would have started here as opposed to this be later, you had Passover, which aligns in modern Christianity around the time of Easter, and we associate that with the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then the fifth feast that appears in Moses is called Shavuot, which we refer to as Pentecost which in its original form was understood to be when the law was given and the first of the harvest, but we understand it in the context of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So those were the five feasts that were in the, the books of Moses, but two more feasts would develop that were not given by Moses. The, the first one was Purim, and this is the one you read about in the book of Esther. This is the one where they were determining the day on which the Jews would be destroyed and they cast the Purim, they rolled the dice to choose the date. But God through Esther works a great reversal in this and you get this festival of Purim which I believe takes place somewhere around March, something like that. So that one's not listed by Moses but that one was still maintained and kept. And then you get Hanukkah, the dedication. But while you will find reference to the other six in the Bible, you will not find reference to Hanukkah in the Bible. In fact, if you want to find it, you've got to go to the books of Maccabees, which we refer to as Apocrypha, as the writings uh, that, go, that took place during the time between Malachi and Matthew. And the story behind Hanukkah is this. In the time when the, the Greeks dominated that region, you'll remember there were, the, there were the Babylonians and then the Medes and the Persians and then the Greeks. And during the times of the Greeks, there was this great conflict that went on back and forth between the Ptolemies in Egypt and the Seleucids 
who were up in the area of modern Syria. And they fought back and forth and often went through Jerusalem at different times. And many of them had different attitudes towards the Jews and towards what they were doing. And at one point, they came in and totally defiled and desecrated the temple. But Judas Maccabees and his brothers rose up and for a short period of time actually threw off external control. And this has always been an interesting point to me because we have so much of Israel's history and so many things in there that take place, but this intertestamental period is not in our Bible and we tend to not know the history. So for a period of time, they threw off external rule. And it was during this time that they rededicated the temple that had been defiled. There's a story associated with it that has to do with a lamp and a lamp that burned abnormally long, much longer than it should have during that period that shone its light. And so you'll see the, the, the menorah, the Hanukkah, which is different than the seven menorah. It's got nine. Is it nine on it? It's got nine different candles on it, and the one in the middle is taller. So this comes from this period of time. Now, what's interesting about this is the Bible doesn't necessarily take a position one way or another other than to state in this passage, Jesus was in the temple at the festival of dedication which would appear that he was honoring these festivals even as they came along. And there's probably a lesson in that for us, that it's not unhealthy to honor something just because it didn't appear in the book of Moses or something like that. That there are expressions of the community that we're right to participate in and be a part of. But let's get back to this. Now, this is... This is not a casual reference just to winter and weather, what he says here. This fact that John mentions this is the festival of dedication at Jerusalem is highly relevant to what's about to take place. And it's relevant because of the Old Testament context. So in order to understand that, I want to take us back to the book of Malachi. So if we go to the book of Malachi chapter 3... You will find these words, and, and you will probably know these, or at least a part of this. Well, I'll just read it to you here. Malachi 3, verse 1, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Now, if you're familiar with the Messiah, the, the oratorio that we often sing at Christmas time, you might recognize these words. The Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. In the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. You, you know that? Even though I sang it that way, you still know it. That's good. This is a messianic prophecy. That the one they seek will suddenly come to his temple, but after a messenger goes before him. Verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? This one who will suddenly come to the temple will create division 
and they will not be sure what to do with him. For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. So this one who will suddenly appear in the temple will be a refiner and the Levites are the ones who will be in the fire. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. So I will put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. So this one who will appear will have a a mission and a purpose where he will hold off the oppression of the mighty and speak for those who are weak and poor. All right, hold on to that thought. Jesus makes an interesting reference in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. So what's happening here is this is the story where he and the disciples are walking through the grain field and they're plucking heads and they're eating the grain. And the Pharisees say, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? And then Jesus will talk about David and his companions when they ate the bread that was not lawful to eat. And Jesus makes in verse 6 this little aside because this notion of the bread in the temple, the temple was so important and the bread was so important. But you get this verse 6, Jesus says, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. And if you'll remember, you'll remember the words of Jesus when he was in the temple. He said, destroy this temple. And I will build it again in three days. Something greater than the temple is happening. Haggai. It's minor prophet day. Haggai chapter 2. Verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? He's talking about the former temple of Solomon that was destroyed. How does it look to you now? Talking about the rebuilt temple. Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. Build this temple. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, The sea and the dry land. There you go. That's a Messiah reference again. Remember this one? Yeah, I'm not going to sing this one. All right. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come. 
And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. So what is Haggai saying? He's making a prophecy that this old temple was glorious, yes. And the Shekinah glory of the Lord was there, yes. But that temple is gone. And now you're building back and it's much more humble. But I tell you that more glory will come to this temple than ever came to the old one. And from this place, the glory that comes will bring you peace and will become the desire not just of the Jews, but the desire of all nations. It's quite a prophecy, isn't it? Let's go back to John 10. John chapter 10. Oops, that's Matthew. John chapter 10. Verse 22. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Jesus says, look at the works. Do you remember what happened in John chapter 9? John chapter 9 is the story of the man born blind. The man born without capacity for sight. And Jesus works the creation miracle. He takes mud And he rubs it on the man's eyes. Just like in the beginning, God formed man out of the dust of the earth. Now Jesus takes mud and with his own saliva, takes dirt and with his own saliva makes mud and makes eyes for the man. It's a creation miracle. And the man goes and washes and you have the whole story about how he says, he starts out as, I don't know, all I know is that I once was blind and now I see. And he becomes bolder and bolder and he begins to testify about who Jesus is and the Pharisees become more and more closed. And Jesus says, I've come into the world so that those who are blind can see and those who can see will become blind. He does this great miracle of creation that only the creator could do, only God himself could do. But the people refuse to see. Isaiah chapter 42, Jesus says, look to my works, look at what I'm doing. Isaiah chapter 42, what will the Messiah do? Beginning in verse 1, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. What happened at the baptism? The spirit of God came down on him like a dove. 
And he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Can you think of a better description of how Jesus behaved himself when he was on earth? He didn't create a ruckus. He didn't create a riot. In fact, when they came and tried to make him king by force, what did he do? He made sure he offended them enough that they left him alone. He would not do it man's way. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. This is what the God of heaven, uh, this is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you, Jesus, in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light to the Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? That's us. That's us. To open eyes that are blind. Did Jesus open eyes that were blind? Yes. To free captives from prison. To release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See the former things have taken place and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Jesus said, look at what I've done and compare it to the scripture and there will be no question about who I am. This is why Malachi 3 verses 1 to 5 says, he comes to purify the sons of Levi, the priests, the very ones who were supposed to be pointing out God's purpose and God's plan and the Messiah are blind to it. Do you remember the story of when Mary and Joseph come to the temple when Jesus is a baby? They come to dedicate him as a baby. And nobody that is part of the official priesthood recognizes him. It takes an old man and an old woman, Simeon and Anna are the only ones in the temple that day who have the eyes of the Spirit. Jesus has come to purify the Levites because they've lost their way. They've lost their ability to see and know. John chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. And then verse 30. I and the Father are one. These are powerful words that Jesus has just said. First of all, he says, my sheep know me and I know them. Second, he says, I give my sheep eternal life. Third, he says, my sheep are safe with me. No one can take them away. And fourth, I and the Father are one. 
Verse 31. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. You know you've been getting in trouble when a a phrase like that begins with again. It's bad enough when they picked up stones once to stone you, but you've been in trouble a lot when you can say again they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? I love that answer. Isn't that fabulous? Which of my good deeds are you stoning me for this time? Verse 33. We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Okay. In fairness, a man claiming to be God is blasphemy. But it's only blasphemy if it isn't true. Right? And this is the problem. This is the challenge. This is the question that comes to every generation. Who do you say that I am? Think about the dilemma that's been created here. Because Jesus spoke against the code words. That overrules everything he's done that supports his claim. It's ironic, right? It it creates this dilemma. Do actions establish our words or do words overrule our actions? This is actually kind of an interesting reality in our day. In our day of cancel culture and and political correctness and the word police. This is a... This is each, you know, the political left and the political right both have their ways of consuming their own. This is a special way in which the left consumes itself. Because you could have a bona fide person who believes all of the theories of the liberal left, but if they say something wrong, they'll be canceled and destroyed. Your words end up mattering more than your actions. But how does Jesus prove to them he really is one with God? Well, you would like to think the actions would prove it, right? And if you look at the actions of Jesus and everything that he's done, and you compare it to the Old Testament prophecies of what the Messiah would do, he has absolutely done it. But because it didn't line up with expectation and because his words were not what they thought they should be, they reject him. It's funny how often they say, tell us literally, are you the Messiah? Okay, I'm the Messiah. Blasphemy! It's not blasphemy if it's true. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. The greatest moment is at hand. Now put this all together in the context of this is the festival of dedication. The greatest moment is at hand. And it is true in this moment that this new temple is greater than the older because Jesus, the Shekinah glory, the literal presence of God, Emmanuel, God with us, 
is literally walking in the temple court in the festival of dedication. You see, the great moment at the original dedication of of Solomon's temple was when the glory of God came down and filled the temple. Now the glory of God is literally filling the temple. But nobody can see it. Verse 34, Jesus answered, is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the father set apart for his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said, I am God's son. This is actually an interesting thing Jesus does here. This is a deflection argument. This is not his most important point. This is something Paul does from time to time. When when the mob has gotten itself organized, he'll throw out a deflection argument. Jesus throws out a deflection argument here, and it's actually pretty interesting. You go to Psalm 82, and you can read the context. That's what he's quoting. It's actually kind of interesting. I'll let you do that on your own time. Verses 6 and 7 it's, it's kind of a technical argument that all humans are sons of the Most High, are sons of God. But now, verse 37, he gets to his actual point. He says this, Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. He says, my works... Establish my words. It's really a a saying again of what he had already said in John chapter 5, verses 33 to 36. You have sent to John and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. The proof that Jesus is who he says he is is found in his works, found in what he did. Verse 39, again they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days, and there he stayed, and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. So we're going to send Jesus across the Jordan, and we're going to leave him there for a few months. We're going to come back to him in January, and we'll go on through the closing weeks of the life. But but the question that it forces is this. What do you believe about Jesus? You remember the end of the book of John, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. These words are written that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, have life in his name. What do you believe about Jesus? Savior, 
Lord, Redeemer, Guide, Hope, Leader. You could probably add to this list. The challenge is this. Will you trust him with your life and how you live your life? And will you bear his name with bold reverence as you live in this day, in this time, as a son and a daughter of God? It's not a casual thing to bear the name of Jesus. It's not a once a week thing to call yourself Christian. To truly follow after Jesus is to acknowledge his lordship. You see, the singular reality of Jesus does not suit our pluralistic age. Maybe you've seen the the coexist bumper sticker. You ever seen that one? It's got every imaginable religious symbol on there. Coexist. Okay, on the one hand, yes, I'm all for getting along. Let's do that. But the cross is not just another religious symbol in the midst of a bunch of other religious symbols. The claim of Jesus is not another claim in the midst of many equally valid claims. It is singular. There is no other name given under heaven by which men can be saved. I am the gate, Jesus says. I'm not a gate, I'm the gate. That doesn't mean we're mean. It doesn't mean we're rude. It doesn't mean we initiate persecution against heretics. But it does mean we're not neutral on the point. To bear the name of Christ is to accept the mission of Christ. To go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And if he really is everything that the scripture says he is, then he is worthy of all of our praise and honor and glory and faithfulness. We'll end it today in Revelation chapter 5. That vision that John sees of when Jesus appears at the throne of God. It talks about the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb in verse 9. And they sang a new song. Why was it a new song? It was a new song because it could never be sung before. Because the work of Jesus had not yet been completed Verse 9, and they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain 
And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Jesus is worthy of all the praise you can give. Live for him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, make this revelation of Jesus real in our hearts, lest we be found amongst the mob that takes up stones to stone him because his claim is just too much. May we give our lives to him in full. In Jesus' name, amen.